So, to begin. I first put finger to keyboard. I typed the words I'm speaking now in early January. I was on retreat in a hermitage in the southern highlands of New South Wales. It was summer, hot, and for a hermitage, surprisingly noisy. Farm machinery ground on in the monastery vineyard. Farm workers drove back and forwards past my veranda with happy, tail-waving dogs in the backs of their utes. Cockatoos, it's a kind of parrot, screeched in the trees. Magpies warbled and scrapped with each other. Cattle bellowed distantly from the back paddocks. And through it all threaded the constant, low-grade chittering of cicadas. Life going on all around. Life with its own preoccupations and pace. And me, trying to think about what a contemplative Christianity means for any of it. <laughs> well, this beginning brought to the fore something I'd become increasingly conscious of over previous months. It was that after last year's John Main seminar in Belgium, and in the light of its theme and scope, our topic this year could seem limited and introverted. Last year, as you know, the seminar was called A Contemplative Response to the Crisis of Change. And building on the work of Meditatio, the World Community's Contemplative Outreach, an extraordinary group of speakers explored the contribution of contemplative practice to the self-evidently urgent needs of our world in domains of economy, politics, environment, science, and health. It was an inspiring and groundbreaking event. Father Lawrence has said he felt it was the most significant John Main seminar since Bede Griffiths led the gathering in 1991, at which the WCCM itself came into being. So, you know, no pressure there. To <laughs> But this year, it seems we turn to a narrower focus, a contemplative Christianity for our time. It's as if, having imagined we've got something to contribute to universal questions concerning the future of life on Earth, we now withdraw into sectarian concern about what? The future of our faith tradition? The shape of the church? wondering where, where all the young people are. I don't know if this has been your experience, but I've noticed a certain deflation in people when they've asked about my theme for these talks. Oh, you're going to Canada, fantastic. The John Main seminar, oh, that's wonderful. What are you talking about? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> So that got me thinking about the relationship between the seminar we're now embarking on and last year's. It made me realise that for me, the question of a contemplative Christianity for our time only matters if it's part of the same conversation, if it's a continuation and deepening of our community's engagement with the needs and possibilities of the world. 
not a withdrawal from that engagement, not a regression from global intersectarian concern, but something that matters for the whole, that's part of the whole, a gift, the offering of which is at the heart of our vocation as a community. Well, that at least is the commitment to which I'm seeking to be responsive and responsible. So I want to suggest we begin by telling the time or at least by becoming present to the, to the time we're in, contemplatively speaking. <clears throat> it's 42 years, though Lawrence might not like me saying that, it's 42 years since Father John Main and Father Lawrence came to Canada to found the, a new monastic centre for the practice and teaching of Christian meditation in Montreal. 42 years in which an enormous flowering of contemplative practices of many kinds and lineages has occurred in Western culture and beyond. Even back in 1977, the work of communicating contemplation as a way of prayer and life was not without precedent. From his hermitage in Kentucky in the 1960s, Thomas Merton had written for a lay audience of the significance of the contemplative vocation, engaging in dialogue with Zen Buddhism in particular. While from the 1950s, the Benedictine monks, Henri Lasso, Abhishek Tananda, and Bede Griffiths, had been rediscovering and exploring the non-dual contemplative path of Christianity in the light of India's Advaita traditions. Also by the 1970s, various forms of meditation and yoga were being popularized by Buddhist and Hindu teachers who had traveled to North America and Europe, while more or less contemporaneously with the foundation of the Montreal Center, the Cistercian monks of St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts, Thomas Keating, William Menninger, and Basil Pennington were developing the method of Christian meditation they called centering prayer. From these monastic beginnings and at the level of culture, as you well know, this contemplative awakening has only gathered pace. In fact, in the last 10 to 15 years, fueled by research in neuroscience, psychology and biology, What's been called the contemporary boom in mindfulness has spread across a huge range of fields, education and academia, healthcare, business, the military and law enforcement, to name a few. The promise of contemplation resonates powerfully, it seems, as an antidote to the ills of our compulsively busy, distracted, an anxious age. Mindfulness and meditation apps, courses and coaching in conscious leadership, university centers of contemplative studies and journals of contemplative research abound. <clears throat> now, of course, the relationship between this boom 
in secular contemplative practice and religious faith is complex. And over the course of these talks, we'll be coming back to this question. For now, though, I want to say a bit more about the unfolding of this recent contemplative awakening within Christianity, focusing particularly on the experience of our own WCCM community and what the story of this unfolding helps us see about the time we're in. In the beginning was resistance. <laughs> Not total resistance, of course. The Montreal Centre came about at the invitation of the auxiliary bishop of that diocese, Leonard Crowley. And prior to that, John Maine had been allowed by the abbot and community at Ealing Abbey to establish the original meditation centre there. Nevertheless, I think what's striking in reading the early letters and talks of John Maine, Thomas Keating and others is the extent to which the church as an institution and many practicing Christians needed to be reassured that wordless, imageless meditation is indeed a legitimate form of Christian prayer. A significant part of the trouble was the commonly assumed identification of meditation with Eastern traditions. And most of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with the story of John Maines having been taught to meditate originally by a Hindu teacher in Malaysia and of ha having been instructed to give up the practice by his novice master when he entered his novitiate. And though the Roman Catholic Church proclaimed in 1965 that the church rejects nothing that is true and holy in other religious traditions, and monastics like Merton, Elred Graham and William Johnston had been advocating that Christians should learn from the meditation practices of the East, it seemed that if meditation were to be widely accepted, there was a felt need to establish that its practice was not only consistent with, but intrinsic to Christian faith, both historically and theologically. John Maine's sense of it being legitimate to return to the practice of meditation came through his reading of John Cassian as having referred to the use of a mantra in prayer while the monks at St. Joseph's sourced the method of centering prayer in their reading of the Cloud of Unknowing. In a lecture titled, An Overview of Contemplative Prayer in the Christian Tradition, Thomas Keating traced Western Christianity's forgetfulness of its own contemplative practice to unfortunate theological and philosophical developments from the 12th century onwards understanding the contemplative revival as a recovery of a lost but authentically Christian wisdom. Meanwhile, theologically, meditation was characterized by these 20th century teachers as an embodied practice for losing one's life as Jesus had commanded, dying to self, the false self and so becoming apt to be filled 
with all the fullness of God. So giving a theological undergirding for this practice, contemplative prayer was characterised as a consent to radical self-surrender or kenosis. And so as a practice that enabled direct participation in the dynamic of Jesus' relationship to the Father and in the Trinitarian life. In the laying aside of all thoughts, the surrender of self-consciousness, the meditator becomes radically open to the spirit within and so is drawn by the spirit to share in Jesus' union with the Father. The wonder of the Christian revelation, John Main wrote, is the unity of being, the union of Jesus with his Father and of ourselves with Jesus. When in our meditation we turn away from the fears, desires, and concerns of the restless ego and turn otherwards, we find ourselves in Jesus. This then opens us to the source of being, which is the love of the Father. For this reason, John Main said, in meditation, we verify the truths of Christian faith in our own experience. And the testimony from that first Christian meditation center was that the regular practice of meditation did indeed enable the discovery of a living faith for many who'd been unable to come to the personal experience of God through conventional forms of religious practice. Gradually, this discovery was shared. And although there are pockets of resistance and suspicions still of the if you empty your mind, the devil will come in variety. It seems to me that by and large, the, the battle has been won. Christians the world over are becoming used to the idea that meditation is a form, a key dimension of Christian prayer. And many have experienced the deepening and enlivening of faith through its practice. So, I'm aware that this is an extremely kind of potted, truncated, oversimplified history, one that neglects the significance and persistent influence of Orthodox Christianity and of many other figures and texts, ranging from John of the Cross to Abbot John Chapman, from Simone Weil to Richard Rohr. It's also one that elides differences in method and approach between Christian meditation, as we practice it, and centering prayer in particular. But rather than give a, a comprehensive account of the sources of the renewal of contemplative prayer in Western Christianity, what I've been just wanting to sketch is something of the background to where our world community finds itself at present. I'm telling a story that traces an evolution in our context from a time in the late 1970s and 80s when much of the work of the WCCM and others was to persuade Christians of the centrality of meditation to Christian life and prayer to our own day when the value of meditation is widely accepted not only within the church but well beyond. And what I'm wanting to suggest is that those of us practicing meditation in the context of the Christian tradition 
are now confronting a rather different set of questions and concerns. So this, the subheading of this little section is called The Problem of Christianity. <laughs> Only one, I hear you ask. Well, these, these are partly related, this problem of Christianity, are partly related to what I call the Serapian effect. Serapian, you'll remember, was the monk immortalised in chapter 10 of Cassian's Conferences. He's the one who is persuaded to try praying without imagining God in human form and ends up in tears, disoriented and disillusioned. They have taken away my God. The story of Serapion reminds us that silent contemplative prayer tends necessarily to draw us beyond attachment to forms. Those images and conceptual frameworks, those earthen vessels that contain and express our relationship to and experience of God. And hence the metaphors of darkness and unknowing so prevalent in mystical texts. And the paradox embraced by writers such as Meister Eckhart and Simone Weil that atheism may be closer to the truth of God than a devotionally assured theism. Now, of course, the loss of the felt sense of the presence and knowledge of God can be a destabilizing and painful feature of the apophatic path, this path of unknowing, which is why traditionally a certain degree of spiritual maturity and stability is recommended for those embarking on contemplative prayer. I suspect for many of us, however, and unlike Serapian, this iconoclastic dimension of contemplative prayer has from the outset been experienced more as a relief than anything else. We'd already lost our images of God. The possibility of discursive prayer had already dried up. And meditation offered us a way to re-engage with the spiritual journey. Maybe not true for, for everyone, but perhaps some of you recognise that. And this is how, as Rowan Williams has said, that for those who have drifted away from the regular practice of sacramental faith, the rhythms and practices of communities like the WCCM are often a way back to this sacramental heart and half. In other words, we'd already lost a certain way of being able to pray, of imagining God. The whole thing had gone dry. And it's, but this is like, oh, there's another way. There's another way we can engage. And that's certainly been an aspect of my experience. And yet, there are still complexities here. For some, rather than being drawn back to the sacramental heart of the church, it's precisely the experience of meditation and the opening to deeper dimensions of faith that makes it harder to continue participating in Christian communities that too often seem alienated from authentic spiritual knowledge. 
I'm thinking of churches that are clubby, tribal, idolatrous, or even abusive. <clears throat> Time and again, I encounter meditators who say they just cannot go to church anymore. At another level again, the movement beyond forms as a fruit of meditation may seem to extend even to the language and symbol systems of faith. So not just to the failings of the church, but to the whole language symbol system. I once talked to a retreatant who memorably described the application of a Christian framework to her contemplative experience, her contemplative practice, as like going to the movies in the middle of the day. When you're inside, in the midst of it, it all seems plausible enough. But as soon as you go outside the cinema, outside the chapel, it feels disconnected from the real world, a kind of illusion. As I've said, it's always been the case that the dynamic of contemplation and its necessary movement beyond forms, that necessary negative, the via negativa, the apophatic way, it's always been the case that this has been in a certain kind of tension with religions, forms, methods and images. Having said that, I think we are facing a new and different kind of challenge. And this is because it's not just the iconoclastic dynamic of contemplative prayer itself with which we have to contend. In our time, we're also practicing this way of prayer in a context where the possibility and plausibility of Christian commitment has been radically relativized by pervasive secularism. As Charles Taylor wrote in A Secular Age, our culture has undergone a shift from a time in which it was virtually impossible not to believe in God to one where for many people, faith never even seems an eligible possibility, such that even for the staunchest believer, it may be difficult in some contexts to sustain one's faith. This is a shift that has been going on now in the West for well over two centuries. But even in the past 10 years, we've entered, it seems, into a new kind of free fall for the mainline church. Contemplation teaches us to sit lightly to the forms and images of our religious tradition, to be non-attached, non-defensive, and non-tribal. But in a context where these forms are less and less central to cultural self-understanding, it can be increasingly difficult, even for those who are nominally Christian, to find engagement with the forms of this tradition a fruitful dynamic in their spiritual growth. Why can't we just meditate, my retreatant asked. The reality of this challenge is reflected in our own community's approach to communicating the practice of meditation. 
more and more, we find it necessary to use secular language, to speak of meditation as part of the universal wisdom of humankind. We all know that in many contexts, and for a variety of often good reasons, brand Christian provokes profound suspicion, even hostility. For us to communicate the gift of meditation means very often, if not denying, at least soft peddling on our Christianity. And here's the point I'm coming to. <laughs> if at the beginning of our community's life, a significant focus was on explaining, justifying the practice of meditation within a Christian historical and conceptual framework, and on enabling practicing Christians to connect more deeply with the truths of their faith. Increasingly, the question we face now is to do with explaining or justifying our community's profession of Christianity to people who are more than happy to meditate without it. See the flip? Which leads to the question, what does our Christianity add to our contemplative practice? Other than what is, for many, a problematic weight of dogmatic and cultural baggage. Why can't we just meditate? Isn't that enough? Right, well, that's, that's me done. <laughs> no, clarifying the question. In the, so in the last part of this opening talk, I want to spend some time clarifying this question and what might be at stake in it. And I haven't found this easy to do. To begin, I'm aware that I'm speaking out of a particular context, the secularising consumerist culture of places like Australia and New Zealand, Europe and parts of North America. The sketch I've offered of the nature of our times might not resonate for those of you from other places to quite this extent or the same degree. I'm also conscious that the sense of there being some kind of problem in connecting our contemplative practice with Christian faith may not ever have been a live one for some of you. That whole relationship between word and silence between scripture, theology, liturgy and sacrament on the one hand and our wordless, imageless practice of contemplation on the other, that, that might not provoke any kind of radical dissonance, any uneasy conscience or concern about relating to life through that lens of a Christian anthropology and a Christian cosmology. It might not have been an issue for you. For others, though, there is a struggle with this. It's more of a struggle. So that's one set of issues, um, you know, a little bit of caveats there. The second issue I'm aware of is that raising the question of what is specifically Christian about our teaching of meditation can sound as though what's lurking in the background is the concern to establish a Christian identity over against others. 
and behind that, perhaps some kind of rivalry or tribalism. At worst, a concern to establish that Christian meditation is somehow superior or more legitimate than other forms of meditation practice. So let me be clear where I'm coming from here. I do think there's a difference between meditation practiced in the context of a faith tradition, any faith tradition, and secular mindfulness or meditation. And this difference is to do with the possibility of being led beyond the agenda of the egoic self. Secular meditation or mindfulness is determined essentially by therapeutic ends, as Father Lawrence has often said. It promises to lower blood pressure, help manage stress, reduce anxiety, and so it does. And these are clearly important human goods and legitimate reasons for beginning a practice. But they're not the only healing we need. The transformation of the deeper sources of dis-ease and unfreedom in human persons and communities calls for something more radical than lowering our blood pressure. It calls for the pro progressive surrender of our falsifying habits of thought and feeling and the distorted perspectives and reactions that flow from them. And it's this possibility and dynamic to which the faith-based teaching of meditation testifies and into which it seeks to draw us into that deeper current of, of healing, which, which comes by transcending or moving beyond the agenda, the egoic agenda. Yet having said this, it seems to me absolutely true that at least at the most basic level, meditation can be taught in a non-proselytizing way and without any preconditions. And in my own story, this is what I loved about it. You didn't have to believe or be committed to any particular tradition in advance. You could just do the practice and trust that it would lead you in its own way and time. If meditation leads you to take more seriously the Christian tradition of your heritage and context, great. If it leads you elsewhere, also great. The practice itself is universal and it licenses no defensiveness, no rivalry. So what then is the question I'm trying to raise? What is my concern with the question of a specifically Christian approach to contemplative prayer? Well, here's what I think I'm trying to get at. Every faith tradition offers a distinctive way of picturing the world and human beings in relation to the world. This picture is operative. That is, it affects how we perceive things and what we connect to what. It inflects the choices we make, the actions that seem possible for us, 
the world we inhabit. Reflecting in the domain of ethics, the English philosopher Iris Murdoch noted that moral differences arise not simply because we make different choices within a shared view of reality, or because we select different objects out of the same world. Rather, she argued, many of our most profound moral differences are an expression of the fact that we see different worlds. So I say it again, moral differences arise not simply because we make different choices within a shared view of reality. Many of our most profound moral differences are an expression of the fact that we see the whole world differently. We see a different world. In a similar vein, Jacob Needleman, who is an American scholar of religion, he wrote, every spiritual teaching brings with it a great body of ideas. These aren't necessarily expressed in abstract language. More often, he says, the ideas of a spiritual teaching are originally communicated to the world through symbolic forms, which are designed to reach the more hidden levels in us of instinct, feeling, and intuition. <coughs> and it accomplishes this through myth and story, through visual images, architecture, music, dance, ritual. Think of, for example, the way um, the, the, the image and the practice of the sharing of the meal in Christianity communicates a sense of how the world is and how we're to relate to the world and one another. And however we imbibe and come to inhabit them, it's these ideas that shape the ground of our action. They affect our image of what's possible for human beings. They affect our relationships with one another and with the natural world. And of course, this goes for the ideas of a culture as much of those of a faith tradition. The stories we tell about the nature of reality matter. Well, a, a tradition starts to go dead. It loses the capacity to shape our lives when its ideas no longer seem to connect to or tell the truth about reality. When we lose access to the experience from which they spring. But this losing access can be a consequence of different things. It can follow from the loss of our capacity to receive its truth, from lack of having ears to hear at the right frequency. As John Main described the experience of those who came to the meditation centres in Ealing and Montreal, this seems to have been the primary lack that was then being addressed. People came to our small centre, he wrote, because they felt the lack in themselves of the interiority and depth needed for authentic spiritual experience. They'd come to accept that just going to church or even practising personal devotions would not be enough. Even if, as many were, 
they were practicing their religion faithfully, they felt a spiritual void and they could no longer be content to try and fill it with just more religious activity. And it was through the practice of silence and stillness that many of these Christians began to find what they'd been looking for. And so to experience the truths of their faith from the inside, no longer just as theories or a system of belief, but as a living, personal dynamic, a world to inhabit. The radically surprising gift of the practice of contemplative prayer was the awakening or reawakening of its practitioner's receptive capacity. So they were working with the ideas already, but they, something was blocking their reception and meditation opened up that channel for reception. And then John Main wrote, I sensed that we were witnessing the birth of a contemplative Christianity. But I've already suggested that our age is undergoing a second kind of loss of access to the faith tradition of Christianity. Not just lack of receptive capacity, but a total cultural disconnect. The pervasive secularism of our context involves increasing forgetfulness, discounting, or simple ignorance of the narratives, rituals, and symbols that have been the medium for communicating this way of making sense of experience and of inhabiting the world. And often it's not so much that people are rejecting or refuting this narrative or struggling to experience it as living, it doesn't even come up enough to reject. <laughs> I met a young woman last year. She was studying at the Australian Catholic University to teach in a Catholic school. At the ripe old age of 21, she had heard for the first time the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. <laughs> wow, that's pretty wild, she said. <laughs> Well, maybe the very strangeness of the story will pique her interest. But maybe it will fall into the same cultural basket as the obscure stories of ancient Aztecs, of passing interest as an artefact of a bygone age, but not remotely to be engaged as a still living truth. Many of us are drawn deeply to the practice of silence and stillness. We can speak relatively easily to our culture of the resource to be found in meditation, contemplation. It's much harder to speak of the resource to be found in the ideas, the meanings, the witness of the Christian tradition. So how necessary is it that it remains possible to speak this language? to inhabit this system of reference. It seems to me that we're at a point in time, in our culture, in our community, where we must dare to engage this question. There are some obvious lines of response, things we can readily say when this question is raised. Here are two that occurred to me. First is that without 
any answerability to a tradition without scriptures, with theological wisdom, tested images and rites, our silent apophatic prayer by itself risks degenerating into a kind of DIY spirituality with little for our subjectivity to butt up against or to learn. Rowan Williams again says, to refuse the question of the proper use of traditional religious form and image is to bypass an essential dialectical movement in the spirit's growth. Dialectical meaning a, di a dialogue partner. You know, that kind of thing you have to engage with even if you disagree with, it, it kind of helps to form and shape you. And translating our personal experience into the language of a tradition provides resources for continuing deepening, discerning of missteps and so on. Think of how a concept like poverty of spirit names something and then helps you to continue to engage with it. So this dialectical engagement. And the second thing that I would say in response to this question of do we even need to bother with this system of reference is that what we're talking about when we talk about the Christian tradition is not merely a symbol system, a set of ideas, but a testimony. A testimony which purports to reveal truth about the proper shape and purpose of human being and to enable a new relationship to the life in whom we live and move and have our being. This is a testimony that has proved capable of transforming human persons, culture and politics again and again. So given the urgency of our current cultural crises, this may not be the moment to give up on its promise and resource. And yet, the fact remains that in Western culture, at least, we just are losing access to this resource, this tradition. Canadian theologian Douglas John Hall has noted that this is not just to do with the decline of the mainline churches, to which the growth in other forms of Christianity, Pentecostalism, Evangelicalism, might be considered a counterbalance. The deeper issue, he suggests, is the decline of influence, including the influence of this faith among the intellectual, artistic and critical elites. It's not that Christianity needs to be endorsed by these elites, but it does hope to be sufficiently stimulating to such representatives of high culture to be taken with some measure of seriousness. Are we still capable of giving an account of how this should be so? Well, the symbol of the World Community for Christian Meditation is of two doves perched on the rim of a chalice. 
It's a symbol with many resonances. The doves are symbols of the spirit, the chalice evoking Christ's self-offering, the water referencing the water of baptism, the dynamic of death and rebirth. It's also a symbol that evokes the unity between the contemplative and the active life, the inner and outer movements of the spirit as one dove looks down to drink and the other looks out to the world. I introduced this talk by remarking that our theme for this year's John Main Seminar, A Contemplative Christianity for Our Time, could be seen as representing an inward turn, a withdrawal of our attention from the needs and urgencies of our world. Our WCCM symbol reminds us, however, that contemplatively speaking, this inward turn is always connected to and in service of our outward gaze and service. I believe that we're at a point in the life of our community where we need to take a moment to recollect and deepen our engagement with what it means to be what we say we are, the world community for Christian meditation. Not from a concern to assert a Christian identity over against other identities, not out of anxiety about securing our place in the world, but rather out of a commitment to discover anew the fullness of the gift that is ours to live from and offer out. It is a privilege to be with you over these days. May they be a blessing to we who are gathered to the wider community of which we are part, and so to the world we love. <laughs>